The UC Wellbeing Channel, your portal to a balanced body and mind. Continue your journey at uctv.tv slash wellbeing. We are really fortunate and grateful to have our keynote speaker here today, Dr. J. Craig Venter. And he's going to be introduced by the director of the Altman Clinical Translational Research Center, Dr. Gary Firestein, who is also the Associate Dean and Vice Chancellor of Translational Medicine here at UC San Diego. Gary? So I'm pleased to introduce um, J. Craig Venter. Um, he is, it says in my notes, one of the leading scientists of the 21st century. I would probably have to say the 20th century uh, uh, as well um, for his uh, amazing contributions to uh, genomic research. In 1998, uh, Dr. Venter founded Solera Genomics to sequence the human genome using tools and techniques that he and his colleagues developed. And this led to the February 2001 publication uh, of the human genome uh, sequence in uh, the journal Science. Um, in uh, 2013, he founded HLI, Human Longevity uh, Incorporated, genomics-based technology-driven company. Uh, that is creating perhaps the largest and most comprehensive genomics database um, in uh, linking uh, the genome to clinical data and uh, patient phenotype. He uh, has also uh, founded and is the uh, chairman and chief, co-chief scientific officer of Synthetic Genomics Incorporated, uh, dedicated to commercializing genomic-driven solutions to address global needs such as new sources of uh, energy, new food, nutritional uh, products, and the next generation of vaccines. I can't list all of the awards that he's received over the years. He's obviously one of the most highly cited scientists. Uh, in 2008, re he received the National Medal of Science. He's in the National Academy of Science and the American Academy of Arts and Sciences and uh, many others. So... Um, I am thrilled to have him here today, uh, and I'm delighted to introduce uh, Dr. Venter to talk to you about, uh, well, there it is, From Designing Life to Prolonging Healthy Life. Thank you. I'm going to talk to you about the work from all three of the organizations and how we've been looking at life and uh, trying to characterize it and then apply it uh, to understanding uh, people and their diseases. And just for the record, this is the Venter Institute uh, on the corner of the UCSD campus. And in case you ever drive over there, that's, uh, it's the first carbon neutral research building in the world. Um, it generates all its own energy, uh, except lately in this weather. Um, uh, but we fill the cisterns with water in this weather, so that works, uh, works quite well. Uh, so it's a not-for-profit, and then there's two for-profits, human longevity and uh, uh, synthetic genomics. And uh, uh, both of those were sort of spin-outs of uh, the Venture Institute in one form or another. The work can be characterized as trying to uh, characterize uh, the phenotypes of species uh, straight from the genotype. Uh, and it becomes important to know whether your genes and your genomes can predict uh, your present and even future uh, phenotypes. And obviously, uh, a big question is whether we can rewrite that code. Um, and, in, in fact, we can. 
not necessarily in humans. So while we've been filling databases with uh, lots of ones and zeros as we sequence genomes over the past several decades, we can convert the four-letter alphabet code into the two-number binary code. And uh, I've called this digitizing uh, biology. And uh, people just have assumed that those ones and zeros in the computer really do represent biology uh, in some direct uh, correspondence. Uh, The data increased in uh, computers since we developed this new method in 1995 for shotgun sequencing genomes and This was a big deal because it took less than a year and was the first genome sequenced. Uh, Now they're done on the order of uh, uh, thousands a day. Um, So things have improved. What was never clear, and particularly from the beginning, uh, whether DNA contains all the necessary information uh, for cellular life. And when we did these first genomes, uh, we're trying to understand them. Uh, in 1995, we didn't sequence just one genome. We actually sequenced two and tried to compare them, and they were quite different. And so we were wondering uh, what a minimal genome would look like and what would be the necessary genes uh, for life. And could we actually do something to prove uh, that everything in the DNA code was necessary and sufficient for life? Um, So we thought we were starting on a really short time course of experiments uh, to try and uh, convert the ones and zeros in the computer back into life. Uh, It took over uh, 20 years to do, uh, but it was an exciting uh, adventure along the way. Uh, We took a couple years off to sequence the human genome, and that was a diversion, and then uh, we we got back to the real job. And we thought we'd start, uh, because those of you who've tried to synthesize DNA uh, know that the the techniques have not been super robust. Uh, Early on, uh, they put a lot of errors in just with simple synthesizers. It was an N minus one situation. The longer a piece of DNA, the more errors. Uh, So we wanted to test a synthesis. And just to show you, we decided just to make uh, uh, all the oligos that would overlap to form uh, Phi X174. We figured we could just PCR them up, inject those in E. coli, and with selection by infectivity, which provides millions of fold of infection, uh, it would work. And not one single clone worked. Uh, it just shows that all the cumulative errors Uh, you can't get there. So uh, we went through a design process and a process to correct errors in the sequence. Uh, And then we injected that piece of synthetic DNA into E. coli. Uh, And this time the experiment worked. And this was the actual uh, first experiment uh, where E. coli recognized this piece of synthetic DNA as normal DNA started reading it, making the proteins. The proteins self-assembled, formed the virus, and after a large number of viral particles accumulated, the uh, cells burst open, and the virus was clearly able to infect uh, adjacent cells. So we call this a situation where the software builds its own hardware. We just put in 
some chemical code and ended up with viral particles that could infect E. coli and self-replicate. Now our goal wasn't to make small viruses, uh, we wanted to make a, uh, a self-replicating cell and it took a long time of developing a whole series of new technologies allowing us to write bigger and bigger pieces of DNA uh, in a very accurate form. So those of you who read DNA, when you look at sequence, uh, people have always been highly tolerant of errors in sequencing uh, because you can sort of assume what something was or get around with the errors. When you're writing the genetic code, it's totally different. Uh, if you're writing your code, uh, errors in uh, certain places uh, will guarantee you won't survive. Uh, and the same is true for any of these cells. So the synthesis part, writing the code, has to be close to 100% accurate, whereas uh, reading uh, can be uh, highly inaccurate. So we had to get ways to make pieces, make them larger, assemble them, um, and uh, result in large uh, pieces. And we're trying to make a 1.1 million uh, base pair uh, molecule based on the uh, mycoplasma mycoides genome. And uh, to do this, the ultimate synthesis was making 1,000 and 1,100 or so 1 kb pieces, putting 10 of those together to make 10 kb pieces, then putting 10 of those together to make 100 kb pieces. And after a certain size, um, E. coli can't deal with them, other systems can't deal with them, but we found if we just put them in yeast, yeast and they're designed the proper way, yeast will just assemble them all through homologous recombination into the, uh, into the final genome. And that's how we assemble the genome. Uh, it created problems of how to get the bacterial genome out of a eukaryote to, uh, uh, to transplant. In parallel, we had a team working on genome transplantation. It's not like uh, nuclear transplantation where you just pop out a nuclei and pop in a new one. Uh, we had to get the genome free and, and the, get it into the cytoplasm of the new cell. Uh, DNA is very brittle. You can't pipette it. So we have to manipulate everything in gel blocks and then move them in and out of gel blocks. But ultimately, we were able to do this experiment where we injected uh, the new uh, synthetic chromosome into a recipient cell. And we designed the genome uh, so that it would have restriction enzymes that would recognize the recipient chromosome, but the restriction enzymes in the cell would not work on our new chromosome. And what happened when these restriction enzymes were expressed from the new code being read, it recognized the original chromosome in the cell as foreign DNA and chewed it up. So now we have a cell or a body of one phenotype uh, with genetic software of a totally different uh, species. And what we ended up with in a relatively short period of time were entirely new cells, where not a single molecule in these cells came from uh, the recipient cell. Everything in these cells, every protein and every derived protein and, and chemical came from uh, a direct read of the synthetic chromosome uh, that was in there. Uh, these cells have all the regulatory properties. They have epigenetics. Uh, and I've been trying to teach people for a long time that epigenetics is still genetics and all these things derive 
from that uh, same linear code, even though they're often taught as separate disciplines. So uh, UCSD is good at integrating sciences. It's maybe you should have an epigenetic and a genetic uh, group here in the uh, uh, translational medicine place. Um, we developed a code so we could watermark any synthetic uh, species, which we think is important to keep it from being uh, confused uh, with people doing evolutionary studies. Uh, this new code allows us to write uh, the entire English language with punctuation and numbers uh, in a code. Uh, people have been doing this for a long time with ASCII code, but ASCII code doesn't uh, break things up, and you can end up with whole new proteins or toxins. So our code puts in very frequent stop uh, codons so w we could write these things and, and have them not uh, uh, create new toxins. So the initial uh, line up there uh, tells you how to decode it. Uh, it um, uh, tells you to send an email uh, to the genome once you've decoded all this information. And in there we had the names of all the scientists that contributed to this, the institutions, and I put in uh, three quotations uh, because with the first genome, um, we just signed it and people complained we weren't very creative, so we tried to get more creative. And so the three quotations, I think you can read them, but the uh, first from uh, 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 James Joyce, to live, to err, to fall, to triumph, to recreate life out of life. Uh, that seemed highly relevant. Um, the second is from the American Prometheus, uh, Oppenheimer's biography. It's told to him by an early teacher, see things not as they are, but as they might be. And the third from uh, Feynman, uh, what I cannot build, I cannot understand. Now, when all this became uh, public, uh, the first thing we got uh, was a letter from James Joyce, a state attorney. Uh, <laughs> asking if we had copyright permission, and we knew that James Joyce was dead. They couldn't fool us. Um, and uh, under American law, you can use up to a paragraph or more with uh, attribution. So uh, that was dismissed. And then we started getting these emails from a Caltech scientist saying we had misquoted uh, Feynman. And we said this is the, from his book, and the only thing you could find on the Internet and so he dug into the Caltech archives and found a photo of his blackboard with the original quotation, uh, which is actually more interesting. What I cannot create, I do not understand. Um, somehow his biographer or somebody uh, mistranslated it. So we think this is much more interesting. So we, uh, we edited the genome to have uh, the correct quotation. So. Uh, 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 so uh, Feynman can rest uh, peacefully. Um, there's lots of applications of these. Uh, I'll just mention a few. Um, uh, because we can interconvert now the digital code uh, and biology, it means we can just send biology through the Internet. And some of you do this routinely without thinking about it is... Instead of sending clones around, people will send a DNA sequence. And if you want the clone, you just send it off to somebody to make the DNA for you. So that's just sending biology around by the Internet. And uh, we, we took this to the extreme uh, with the H7N9 outbreak in China. Uh, in 2013, with the first outbreaks, some Chinese scientists sequenced a uh, novel H7N9 virus 
that under the international viral rules posted it to uh, this viral uh, sequence internet uh, site. Uh, we downloaded it uh, the next day and completely uh, within a week synthesized the H7N9 uh, virus. And uh, uh, no, provide this to uh, Novartis and to the CDC. Uh, it wasn't until I think about six months later till the clone could actually get from China to the U.S. So it actually arrived uh, uh, through the Internet in less than a second. Uh, and in a week from that, we had reproduced the virus, and that started uh, vaccine production uh, quite quickly. And so um, it, it's part of uh, sending a biology through, through the Internet. We also decided that uh, the first versions we built were largely copied off existing uh, species, which made sense uh, because there were so many independent variables. If we tried to just design a cell from the beginning when we're trying to work out all the uh, thousands of bugs just to be able to write a code and get it booted up, it would have never have worked. But once that was done, we went back to design cells from scratch in the computer. And we thought this would be uh, relatively simple because there was almost 20 years of literature where everybody was pretty much uh, agreed upon this essential set of genes uh, for life, doing the same experiment over and over again. So we had a contest, uh, a design contest, and uh, we uh, actually synthesized the four, uh, what we thought were best designs, and booted them up and not a single one worked. Uh, and so we knew something was wrong. We didn't realize it was going to take us five years to sort it out. But we had to do this design build thing to add uh, sets of genes back until we could get a living cell again. Uh, and then we'd go through and try and remove some of those and improve it. And so we worked around this uh, cycle a few times and till we uh, finally got to what seemed to be a minimal uh, a genome, um, which it is, it's a minimal genome. So no matter what kind of cell you start with, it will have a different minimal uh, gene set. So one from this mycoplasma won't work on everything. But the big surprise was uh, out of 473 genes, 149 were of unknown function. We expected maybe 5 maybe 10%, uh, but it ended up being 30%. And uh, that was a real shock uh, uh, to all of biology because everybody was sure we knew what these uh, components were. Uh, we also designed a new 16S RNA because some people classify cells based on that. So we had to have a new one uh, so our synthetic cell wouldn't be classified as some pre-existing uh, cell. And that, it's actually hard to change 16-sRNA on its own uh, without changing the other ones. But uh, uh, we ended up with these self-replicating cells that uh, will make billions of copies of themselves uh, if uh, they want to. Um, it was pretty stunning, those these 149 genes. And uh, there's a lot of effort going on uh, to characterize those, and, and how could biology have missed uh, so many of these things? When we look at them, uh, some of these are highly conserved across a lot of species. 
so basically everybody bought into the same subtraction experiment of subtracting out the unknown genes and therefore having the same common gene set and in essence missed a third of all absolutely essential functional biology uh, for living cells. Uh, so a lot of work going on now to characterize what these are, and uh, this probably means we're missing at least a third of biology, if not more, that's essential for life, because this is just for this minimal cell, and it's going to be different uh, for each species. We're also uh, defragging uh, the genomes, because if we're going to do uh, life by design, It'd be nice to have modules of uh, cassettes of the different functions. And the amazing thing is this actually works. We can just rearrange uh, the genes. Um, so if there was a designer, uh, the work got really messed up over the last several billion years until we're, we're, we're doing it the right way now. We're, uh, uh, we're, we're trying to get it down to a really designed life. But just for one-eighth of the genome, this shows you the kind of changes you have to make in reordering uh, the genome. And uh, it's just from all the random recombinations and changes that have taken place over a long period of time, that in essence, gene order doesn't matter. Uh, when people first investigated genomics, uh, when I was taking biology here as an undergraduate, uh, everybody was certain that gene order was essential because uh, they studied a few operons, and instead of operons being rare things, everybody thought they dictated the order of everything. But, um, so we can recreate gene order, and we can do cassettes, but uh, it's still the most minimal cell. We're still struggling to understand the function of many of the different genes. So that, that certainly puts uh, uh, humans in... Uh, cells into some sort of context for us. Um, and again, as we try to go from genotype to phenotype, uh, what happens um, when we go up to cells with uh, 20,000 genes? Um, you can tell I just came from China because it says how many Chinese authors were on this paper. So um, they're everywhere. Um, and uh, that they, the Chinese government was giving me an award for international cooperation, and so uh, it's, it started with how many uh, Chinese authors we had, uh, even on the first, the first paper. But um, that first genome cost $100 million to do, took nine months, uh, and took a $50 million computer that was only one and a half teraflops to assemble it. So it wasn't a highly replicable event. In fact, not much happened for a while. In 2007, uh, we published the first complete diploid uh, genome. Uh, the cost hadn't really changed all that much, uh, and this was an extension of the earlier work. But uh, over the past 15, 16 years, technology has started to change, uh, and that's when we just started to, decided uh, it met a certain threshold that I was looking for uh, to start back into large-scale human genomics because you, at $100 million a genome, you're not going to do too many. So we were waiting until it got below $2,000. Uh, and uh, it affects 
very much the practice of medicine, and uh, presumably that's what you guys are trying to do in this uh, new institute, but t today medicine is mostly reactive, uh, and we're trying to change it to uh, proactive and uh, preventative, and we see results of this every day now at HLI, uh, the difference between early cancer that we discover in the health nucleus versus uh, we now have uh, three women in their 30s uh, with stage four colon cancer that was discovered because they had symptoms that caused them to discover it versus when we discover cancer, we're discovering it because it's there before uh, people are aware of it. Um, everybody thinks uh, in their 20s and even 30s they're immortal, but roughly a, a third of males will not reach the age of 74, and 20% of females will not reach the age of 74 in this country. And two of the biggest reasons for that are uh, cancer and cardiovascular disease. You can see for males, uh, cardiovascular is slightly higher percentage than it is for women, and women cancer is slightly higher, but roughly two-thirds of the reason that 20 and 30 percent of females and males won't reach the age of 74 is because of heart disease and cancer. Uh, the other third uh, classifying all these other diseases. So uh, our, our thinking in human longevity of looking at all diseases was important, but if diseases like cardiovascular disease and cancer could be uh, detected early, uh, predicted early, and acted upon, it would uh, change outcomes. And this is just looking at, uh, in, in the U.S., uh, over a, a century of changing from a half time of uh, 57 years to now, uh, if you're born in 2010, which I assume nobody here is, but uh, students get younger every day, um, that, uh, you know, moving into the 80s and 90s is possible. But you can see when you get down into age 90, it's still small percentages. It's uh, 10, less than 10% of people uh, live into their 90s. So uh, there's still a tremendous way to go in terms of understanding early death. Uh, and we think this can be shifted uh, quite a bit uh, to the right. Uh, we started uh, a very large sequencing center where Illumina is the uh, biggest customer. Um, and uh, we have now over 40,000 uh, complete genomes. Uh, just the ACs, Gs, and Ts are about 4.6 petabytes of data. Uh, we have over 20 petabytes of data altogether. Uh, if in 2012 you wanted to index the entire internet, you could have done it with 12 petabytes of data. So this is starting to get into the big uh, data uh, range, and a goal of a million genomes would clearly put us in the exabyte range. Uh, so uh, the computing aspect of this is really essential uh, in that it keeps changing. Um, but I'll show you some interesting things we could do even with the first uh, 10,000 genomes. Uh, and this paper was published uh, last year in PNAS. We're trying to define a very high quality genome that can be used, 
for clinical purposes. So just like with writing the genetic code, if you're trying to base a diagnosis on the accuracy of a single base pair at a single point, uh, you want to have pretty good idea that that data is right. So we sequence it to the point that all the covered uh, genome, each of those base pairs is covered at, at least uh, uh, 10 times. And uh, the term genome has become pretty loose, uh, even in the scientific literature. So uh, a paper published last year in Nature uh, listed it as the sequence of 1,000 human genomes. Uh, it turned out to be the sequence from 1,000 human genomes, and they were covered less than 25% uh, coverage. Um, so there is a lot of confusion out there, and when our scientific journals can't even get it right, it's, it's not surprising the lay public can't tell the difference between 23andMe and a, and a 30x uh, sequenced uh, a genome, but that's uh, roughly uh, where we are. Uh, the whole genome is still not completely covered by Illumina or any other uh, sequences. The blue is where we have highly accurate coverage, and the gray uh, is where the coverage uh, falls off, uh, but the blue is the essential uh, a, a genome, and with that you can see we have a very low false positive and very low uh, false negative rate, but uh, it is important to understand that telomeres and centromeres are still uh, pretty poorly covered. Now, one of the biggest surprises is we saturated all the human variants on the planet with less than 10,000 genomes. I, I thought it was going to take far more than that. Uh, and after that point, we started seeing uh, variants that only occurred once, at least in our population. And as that population changes, those numbers change a little bit. So once that it was once out of 10,000 is different than once out of 40,000, and that's a continually changing number. But what you get in some of the common chips are the most common variants. And by definition, uh, they can't be a disease uh, causal. So uh, the ones that are most important are the ones we see that people have one of out of the entire population. And if we were to sequence any of your genomes now, on average, we'd find about 8,000 uh, unique variants. Um, uh, some of you might have seen me on Chelsea Handler's show giving her her genome report. She actually had 15,000 unique variants, uh, but she has a very diverse, um, I was going to say sexual background, a very diverse uh, ancestry. Uh, well, I think that was involved at some stage. Uh, so uh, her ancestors derive from several different parts of the world, giving her a much uh, higher uh, variation. But we can put all this data together from all these genomes and look at billions of data points. And we're looking to see if there was a uh, parts of the genome that were absolutely intolerant to variation. And wherever you see these spikes go down is where uh, if you have variants there, uh, the ones that go to zero means if you have a variant there, it's intolerant, uh, incompatible with life. So simple variants at these sites could be causes of spontaneous abortions, um, a lack of viability, et cetera. But uh, uh, they also start to give us, when they're not uh, as steep, um, 
a likely occurrence of things that are going to really affect uh, phenotypes or diseases. And, uh, for example, putting all 23,000 transmembrane domain proteins together, uh, it's not surprising that the transmembrane uh, section uh, has a low tolerance for mutations, because obviously if you get a, a charged amino acid in there, it's going to pop that uh, protein out of the membrane or change its conformation. So just having this kind of map of the whole genome and then looking at your own variations, you can make predictions without knowing any biology whether some of those variations are going to be significant or not. In fact, uh, we found a number of sites uh, in the genome um, that are incompatible uh, with any kind of long life. And the way we find a number of variants that we found, they're always, thus far, they're loss of function heterozygotes, and they just disappear from the population after uh, 45 or 50. So if you have these, we know you won't live beyond the age of 50. Um, so the biology has to be really interesting around these because they're just loss of functions on a single allele. Um, and so we think they're going to make some really interesting new, new uh, druggable targets. Uh, also, it used to take uh, large pedigrees to sort out anything in genomics. Now it just takes a single patient. It helps if you also have their parents, so you can do a trio, for example, with rare diseases. So. This was a child from uh, Rady's Children's uh, who has uh, Delamin syndrome, and there's only about uh, 30 cases of this in the world, and there was no genetic information. Uh, if you look at the, uh, uh, the brain MRI, uh, you don't have to be able to read MRIs to know that that's a pretty scrambled brain. And the most surprising thing is this kid has speech and seems to have somewhat uh, normal function. Um, and his body's also covered uh, with these uh, small uh, tumors. So we knew it was obviously going to be a multigenic uh, disorder, uh, and it was actually very interesting on sequencing his parents that his parents turned out to be extremely closely related. Um, turns out they're actually second cousins, but where you see these uh, large uh, solid orange blocks that's where both parents have identical genome sequences. So that means any rare allele in there is going to be expressed as a dominant uh, trait. And in these regions were regions of uh, a lot of neuronal development genes. It turns out while they were only second cousins, they were from a small village in Mexico that had a lot of inbreeding uh, over the years. And so you can see when it happens, you start to see this kind of fixation in the genome. And uh, we see a lot of this in, in the Mideast and Saudi Arabia uh, and Emirates, et cetera, where they have lots of uh, our primary first cousin marriages in limited uh, Bedouin tribes. So you really start to fix some of these diseases, and that's why they have the highest rates of genetic disease in those areas. So we found a series of genes uh, mostly in these uh, areas, and it, with the exception of one that was very interesting, and that was the neurofibromatosis 1 gene. So uh, we zoomed in on that, um, 
and looked, it turns out neither parent had a mutation uh, in that gene. So we use this as an example of you do have the genes that you get from both your parents, but we all have several hundred to several thousand spontaneous mutations. So this kid with this uh, already difficult set of uh, uh, neural development alleles that he inherited. He also had a spontaneous mutation in the NF1 gene. And this is, uh, you may know this from elephant man's disorder and all the small tumors. So this explains the tumors, uh, but not the rest. So we can get down to a lot of information now about uh, single cases. We're using this extensively in cancer. Uh, we have a comprehensive cancer program at HLI, where we sequence the entire uh, patient's germline genome. Uh, we sequence the tumor genome to very high coverage. Uh, we do RNA-seq on the tumor. We isolate the T-cell population from the tumor and sequence the, the, the population, <clears throat> but also characterize uh, the neoantigens. And this gives us a lot of information. For example, this was a man in his 50s who developed HPV-16 uh, caused head and neck cancer. And just looking at his genome, we found uh, three mutated oncogenes, some genes associated with immune suppression, and from his microbiome, we found HPV-16 present. Uh, if we found that in anybody, you know, our uh, non-medical uh, argument would be uh, start taking the HPV-16 vaccine if you can get a hold of it, because it's probably a case of when, not if, you will get cancer. Um, on sequencing his tumor, uh, it had 25,000 overall mutations. Uh, 315 of those were in uh, proteins, neoantigens. Uh, but we found that HPV uh, had integrated into multiple sites in the genome, uh, disrupting nine uh, genes. So, um, but we do extensive pathway analysis, not just looking for mutated genes, but other genes in the pathways uh, that may suggest uh, uh, therapies. Um, but the approach that we're really driving for now is we're taking these neoantigens and trying to develop uh, custom vaccines for that individual uh, and their tumor. So that work's just getting going in collaboration with many people at the uh, Moore's uh, Cancer Center. So we didn't want just to collect lots of genomes. We wanted well-phenotyped individuals. Uh, we had lots of collaborations with people here at UCSD and other places that had well-phenotyped populations, but that wasn't good enough. Uh, so we set up our own uh, phenotyping clinic that we called the Health Nucleus. And we do uh, a very extensive phenotyping there. A lot of it is uh, dealing uh, uh, with uh, imaging, and these have all been in, uh, uh, in collaboration uh, with colleagues at UCSD. Dale Anders' group in particular has been uh, most helpful with all the MRI imaging, uh, which is a very key part of what we do. And, particularly with this relatively new approach, uh, the restriction spectrum imaging allows uh, by looking at the fixation of water and tissues that uh, you can differentiate tumor tissue from normal tissue 
because the nuclei are slightly larger and have more uh, fixed uh, water. And so without any contrast media, uh, we can see uh, in, in many cases uh, the presence of cancer, but it also allows us to see blood vessels and other things. So here's a study done by, uh, uh, by Anders Group. Uh, David Caro has been working with us diagnosing prostate cancer without any contrast media uh, just using the MRI. And so the bright yellow areas are where uh, it's diagnosed just from the MRI as cancer. Uh, and you can see it correlates extremely well uh, with the pathology uh, on the uh, removed uh, prostate. Uh, here's a zoom in on one of these areas so that you can see. So um, it, it's not surprising when you see how these tumors are restricted to certain areas that uh, a typical prostate biopsy taking uh, 20 random needle shots on the uh, prostate might miss these tumors, which happens uh, not infrequently. And now using the MRI and uh, um, ultrasound, uh, the biopsies can be taken precisely in these regions uh, that were first diagnosed uh, in the MRI. We see a lot of things on imaging. Uh, all the clients that we have at the Health Nucleus are uh, presumably healthy individuals. Uh, but health is a mid-century fallacy. If you look okay and feel okay, you're deemed to be healthy. Uh, we can actually tell you whether you are or not. Uh, a hospital won't tell you because you have to be sick to go find out, and if you're already sick, then you're already not healthy. Uh, but uh, 30 to 40% of people who come to the health nucleus, we find significant findings. Uh, this was uh, a woman who thought she was just getting routine physical and was unaware of this almost grapefruit size ovarian cyst. Uh, at this stage, it doesn't matter whether they're cancerous or not. Uh, just from torsion, uh, it can cause uh, massive internal bleeding. Uh, one of the things I like best about the MRI imaging is we get metabolic data now. Uh, and the metabolic data people are most interested in is uh, liver fat. Uh, so knowing your organ fat is really critical. Uh, liver fat, I can tell you, is uh, quite labile. Um, one of the world's experts on this is on our board. We're on a uh, halfway through a 30-mile uh, bike ride, and uh, he said, uh, you know, exercise won't do anything to lower your organ fat. And I said, why couldn't you have told me that 15 miles ago? Um, <laughs> it's only by uh, calorie restriction that, uh, that you can do this. And I, I did my own experiment, my first MRI image. 4% is normal, so I was at 4%. <laughs> And then after the, uh, a long uh, hiatus of fun uh, over the Christmas holidays, uh, it came back and it went up to 7%. So it can change very rapidly. Uh, and then by just going on a vodka-only diet, it went back down uh, to 4 again. So, uh, so you can control it uh, if you're aware of it. But it's, the, 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 all jokes aside, the stunning thing is we're finding... A surprising number of people with very elevated uh, uh, liver fat, I think the highest to date has been 38%, uh, with people that are completely unaware of this. So this uh, 
this Nash disease is, is very important. And uh, uh, so I think a few years ago, people thought about getting straight metabolic data right off the MRI image without any contrast uh, wouldn't be possible. So we look at the brain, we look at a variety of systems, and here's some of the images I was talking about. So this is a complete picture of your brain vasculature without using any contrast. So the MRI doesn't give you any uh, radiation problems, and as long as you didn't swallow BBs, you'll not have any problems going through the magnet. Uh, but you could have these done every day without any problem, whereas before, um, as many of you know, uh, with, uh, with contrast, um, uh, uh, 2 to 3% of people actually have allergic reactions, and we're trying to avoid that. So these are really stunning pictures, and uh, uh, so they allow us to see things. Uh, if you see that little bleb there, it's a, it's a brain aneurysm, uh, uh, and these things uh, tend to pop and either cause massive strokes or, or sudden death. So... These are incidental things that we're finding uh, that are life-threatening, but uh, with interventional radiology uh, are now treatable as an outpatient. This was one of the things we were most interested in was diagnosing Alzheimer's disease. And aside from uh, liver fat measurements, uh, everybody at HLI worries about the size of their hippocampus. Uh, so the hippocampus is that uh, a bright yellow area, and here's the, uh, this is the hippocampus in a, uh, a normal person. And with Alzheimer's disease, you can see it's really uh, degenerated, and there's a, a big void around it. So you don't have to be a skillful neurologist uh, to, uh, uh, to diagnose that. But um, uh, what uh, Anders and his team developed is an algorithm that measures quantitatively 20 different brain region volumes. And so they can measure the volume of your hippocampus uh, very accurately. And uh, so we have a contest to see who has the, the largest hippocampus. And uh, thus far, it's my mother-in-law. So it, it, means, <laughs> it means she won't ever forget anything. <laughs> um, but it was important because... Uh, her mother had uh, died from, with bad Alzheimer's disease, and she was worried that uh, she was susceptible to it. Uh, we also see a variety of other things going on in the brain, uh, such as this, uh, you can see that red area up at the top. It's a, uh, basically a vascular tumor, a mangioma, uh, that uh, they're usually benign, uh, but they can cause massive uh, bleeds. Uh, here's another uh, vascular kind of tumor. Um, one person, we just found a hole in his head. Um, and his mother always told him he had a hole in his head. But uh, um, so he obviously had a stroke at some early stage, and, and there was just a uh, hole there. This, was, this guy was in his uh, uh, 30s. Uh, we take a lot of approaches to the heart. Uh, we do 4D echo, so we get these... Nice videos where you can see all chambers of the heart. You can actually zoom in and look down and see uh, your own heart valves. Uh, we can get exact measurements and diameters and things uh, all in, in about 15 or, or 20 minutes. And with CT, uh, I have to confess, this, this was done on my heart at UCSD. It wasn't done on our CT scanner because this one takes uh, contrast media 
Uh, I show this uh, usually for HR just to prove that I have a heart. And, uh, um, but we now get these exact calcium scores um, uh, showing the amount of calcium in the coronary vessels. One of the most interesting things in the cardiac characterization, we just have you wear a patch for two weeks, so it's a remote sensing thing. We have now uh, over a half dozen people that have had important diagnoses made just from wearing this remote patch. Uh, here's three examples. We had episodic atrial fibrillation for seven or eight hours a day without knowing it. So uh, presumably while sleeping, but... Uh, uh, and then we had two other individuals that had uh, episodic heart block where the heart rate would go down to 20 beats a minute or less. So they're in risk of sudden cardiac death. So the individuals, uh, some of these were put on anticoagulants and one with heart block were put on um, uh, pacemakers. But we've been trying to look at the adjustments of lifetime uh, risk um, and whether findings we have and things we do decrease the risk. Uh, so uh, the red is for decreased risk on individuals. Uh, but you can see there's a lot of these uh, blue areas where th what we're finding uh, greatly increases uh, their lifetime risk of, uh, of death if something's not done about it. But these early findings, in most cases, enable something to be done. We're working with a uh, Swedish group that does this really beautiful quantitation that measures your precise muscle mass and your peripheral versus your uh, uh, visceral uh, fat content. Um, uh, women always love these because not only does it tell you exactly how much fat you have to get these, you lie down flat and it kind of flattens it out even worse. So, you know, uh, people usually don't like uh, being given these pictures, but it becomes very important in knowing the ratio of your peripheral to visceral fat uh, and uh, being able to try and change that. So don't have a chance. I've mentioned several of these, but uh, you know, out of the first uh, 200 or so people, uh, the number of findings have been really uh, stunning, and, and they've held up uh, as we approach over 500 people now in the health nucleus of continuing to find things that... The important thing is we're trying to relate these back to the genome, and we're doing these as we have multiple incidents of things, we can do that, but uh, where some genes were known, obviously polycystic kidney disease, polycystic liver disease, we can find uh, uh, the prediction in the genome, but the MRI imaging either confirms or denies those predictions. So uh, what we do in the clinic gives us the truth of the situation. Uh, right now, most of what we do in the genome is still predictions, and that's what we're, we're trying to change, and we're using machine learning as we generate more and more data uh, to do this. So if you get a genome report from us, they're around 500 pages, and we predict your height, your weight, your BMI, your eye color, uh, your hair color, and uh, we also wanted to predict your face. So we did a a uh, clinical project of taking uh, 3D uh, photos from a 1,000 volunteers and sequence their genomes and then use this as a, a training set, and our, our algorithms keep getting better. Uh, 3D photos are not something people really like. They, they show every flaw and magnify it. So 
Uh, people like it better if we even smooth the 3D uh, uh, photos. So this was the uh, 3D uh, photo, and this is now our computer prediction just straight from uh, the genetic code. Um, people quite often like their predictions because right now the predictions predict complete symmetry. Uh, and uh, so we haven't found out how to distort those yet. Um, uh, here's a male subject, and here's the uh, computer prediction just from the genetic code. While we have eye color and eye shape, uh, we haven't yet put it into these predictions. And from the MRI, we're getting skull shape and other things uh, and even ears to add to these predictions. So, uh, you know, if you look around at people and you try and remove hair and glasses and ears, uh, people do look remarkably similar in trying to find these things that really distinguish uh, features. Um, it, they're usually linked to ethnicity. So the more diversity in the ethnic background, uh, the better the predictions are. So um, northern European males are actually the most difficult to tell apart, which is what people have been saying for a long time, but I guess it's true. Um, uh, but I think those, as the training sets get larger and larger, uh, this data will get better. So the reason we're focused on this is, number one, uh, the federal government says you can de-identify a genome by eliminating your name, address, social security number, and photographs with it. And we're proving that we can totally identify you just from your genetic code. Uh, we accurately predict your HLA type, uh, your blood type, your, if you have a Y chromosome, your Y chromosome haplotype, which quite often is enough on its own. You take your Y chromosome haplotype and go out uh, to the internet, you can quite often find a surname associated with that and link back to that. So just one single allele, and uh, uh, also the same goes for having your maternal uh, mitochondrial haplotype. So we have that plus uh, a prediction of your face. By the way, the face predictions predict uh, just post-puberty. So we have algorithms that age the photos, but they're, they're not uh, particularly uh, good at doing that yet. But you can see we're early on, and as training sets get better, all these things get better. And the plan is to take all the data from the health nucleus and other sites and from oncology uh, back uh, to make links uh, with the machine uh, learning. Uh, I mentioned earlier we're uh, generating a lot of data. Uh, we're, one of, we're in the 1% group for uh, Amazon uh, Cloud up there with uh, video streamers and porn sites. Um, and uh, even getting uh, extra servers uh, to do on-the-spot calculations is tough at this level. Uh, so imagine once we're at the uh, exabyte level, how much computing has to change in the next few years. So we're trying to go from uh, where medicine is to proactive and preventative. Uh, and we're starting to get there, and we're trying to change the notion of medicine being a clinical science that's supported by data to medicine being a data science supported by clinicians. Um, you may not like that view if you're a clinician, but uh, uh, I think it's going to improve uh, the accuracy uh, and the precision uh, uh, for everybody. So thank you very much.